When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year, with a look at the state of country music during pop's big year. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say 80s roll? That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, welcoming back Ed Legg to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down. How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year, and this week we're covering the chapter at the 13th Annual International Country Music Fanfare in Nashville, June 4th through 10th, 1984. Ed, did you make it to the fanfare that year? I did not, but the year before I was in a press box eating press box food across from across a table from Kenny Rogers and, and Miss Marion, his wow. wife from Hee Haw. Wow. Wow. Because he had it, his ranch was near Athens, and I was covering Georgia football. And I guess he came up and he probably ate in the press box because we we were probably less likely to bug him. That's probably a wise call. I mean, the man was was at the top of his field at that point in time. And, 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 absolutely. Printing his own money, basically. <laughs> yep. And inflicting uh, islands in the stream on the rest of us, which, uh, you know, it was a massive, massive hit. One of uh, two songs to go platinum, two singles to go platinum in 1983. So, you know, just absolute massive crossover hit written by Barry Gibb and the other Bee Gees. And Dolly Parton, of course, was was the co Partner in crime, I think, is the appropriate <laughs> lingo for that one. I, yeah. I mean, maybe yeah, I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being unfair. I don't know. But I, 
that song, man, I, I have a lot of bad memories associated with that song. I mean, a lot. Like, I think younger kids who's, or, you know, younger people, but people whose experience of the 80s was like playing with their Masters of the Universe dolls, you know, in the kitchen while they watched their mom doing stuff or taking them to work or whatever, taking them to school on the way to work get a totally misapprehension of what the 80s were actually like. And the 80s really sucked. I mean, it was the Reagan era. The right-wing backlash was in full effect. The homophobia and racism was off the charts. It was just... And I, I just associate, you know, waiting for having tires changed some awful place and listening to Islands in the Stream, you know, not listening to it, but having it forcibly placed in my ears. So it was, you know, painful stuff. But the chapter yeah, covers the way the way much. Fox the way Fox News is on in hospital waiting rooms now. Yes, yes, <laughs> it, it's it, yes. not that that's bad. I'm kidding, but <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. But it was it is bad. Yes, <laughs> it is. It is all bad. <laughs> but. The chapter doesn't start with that. The chapter starts with the, the, the fanfare with an announcement that Willie Nelson will be signing autographs at the CBS Records booth. Oh, no, he won't. Like, that, that's the... And I, I, I mean, obviously, Matos wasn't there, and he's he's doing the stuff from, from articles. So he found some article that, that had that little touch of Willie Nelson's going to be there, and now he's not. But <clears throat> they... They talk about Kenny and Dolly, of course, but they also talk about Willie, and Willie was the biggest uh, star in this period, and it's a country star in this period. It's interesting, but it's true. Willie was by far the biggest pop crossover artist out of all these characters. I mean, bigger than Dolly, even bigger than Kenny Rogers, because, you know, as big as, say, The Gambler was in the 70s or Coward of the County, Willie was even bigger, um, you know. He wasn't even he didn't even perform on Lukenbach, Texas, but it mentioned his name. So, you know, and it was just one of many hits. And I think he didn't talk about the Merle Haggard um, crossover duet that Willie had in 83, Poncho and Lefty, that was a massive hit. And I think also a crossover hit to some degree. But of course, in this season, Willie is really pushing to all the girls I've loved before. I guess he didn't really have to push it. He just put it out there. A duet with Julio Iglesias. And this thing was, I mean, that single was omnipresent. And it, and sad, it pains me to say this, but it wasn't any better than I was on the stream. Am I wrong? <laughs> the only thing better was that Willie was singing on it. That's true. Willie had cool points, but you know, Dolly's as cool as Willie or close. Maybe not. Well, that's quite. That's true. But she's, You're right. She's, universally beloved yeah. and yet yeah, that's you know that and that, talented like willie is she's, she's yeah. a franchise like willie is to your right and and you know i don't want to diss kenny rogers i love coward of the county which is a testament i own bad taste but uh, you know he had kenny rogers in the first edition in the 60s with checking in to see what condition my condition was in and i, I think yeah uh, uh, you know he didn't write that obviously but it was a it was a massive hit and and you know, long career, and but by the early 80s, Kenny Rogers had really curdled. He and Lionel Richie were threatening to become one person and <laughs> <laughs> just inflict endless 
pablum on everybody. And Lionel Richie, I mean, he was in the Commodores. They were badass. And, and you know, something happened around this time. And Matos will come to Lionel Richie later. But Kenny and Lionel were, were circling each other and, and perfecting this kind of post-rock pop that's going to become, you know, the dominant medium or one of the dominant forms of, of pop in the 2000s. But the whole tradition of... Mariah Carey and Celine Dion and 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 what we call pop now I think really comes from this this period and 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 Barry Gibb his work with Barbara Streisand in the 70s I think was absolutely crucial to that blend and maybe you could even blame Willie Nelson for some I don't know they blame but you know I don't know there was an interesting thing going on and one thing that was interesting was uh you know Matos has a, a quote from somebody um from Jimmy Bowen who was like the king of Nashville and at this time, the record exec that was the king of Nashville. And he was saying, you know, the reason that you had so much pop crossover in the early 80s was because the pop market was on its knees and it was really struggling. And so country was kind of filling in the gap. And then when pop got its act together in 84, country's back to the fanfare in Nashville, you know, <laughs> where it belongs. So, um, well, I guess we should go ahead and play our first song. And this is, of course, Willie Nelson and Julio Iglesias to all the girls I've loved before. Willie Nelson and Julio Iglesias duetting on To All the Girls I've Loved Before. And, and you know, of course, Matos uh, shares Willie's cover story, which he uh, told on multiple award shows. I, I didn't take much clicking around researching this episode to find uh, an award show where Willie Nelson is telling the story of how he claims that he heard Julio on the radio in London, didn't know who he was, and just had, loved that voice and had to do a duet with him. And then his wife tells him he's one of the biggest sellers on earth. I'm sure that had nothing to do with Willie's desire to yeah. switch you up. With <laughs> but um, you know, it's it's just it's it was an interesting career move, and it was an interesting period. I mean, you know, Willie obviously started doing duets with Waylon Jennings, and then you know he's done duets with Ray Price and George Jones and Merle Haggard and Johnny Paycheck and and many others. But by this point he's just doing duets with pretty much anybody and getting bigger and bigger. And I think, I think Montas has a great sentence here that he says by 1984, Willie had pulled off the most unheard of type of crossover, completely ubiquitous yet so subtle that no one minded. And I've never really heard anybody complaining about Willie Nelson being overexposed. I mean, I'm sure somebody hates Willie Nelson, but I've never encountered this person. Have you ever come across anybody who hates Willie? No. And I mean, the thing that, the thing that, um, about Willie that, that, that I can't quite transcend is that my dad's best friend kind of, he worshiped him to the point that one time we were watching SNL and Willie came on and the next day my dad was talking about 
his friend about it, and his friend was furious that he didn't call him that instant, which at that, you know, it was midnight on the East Coast, and his friend's mad because my dad didn't call him because Willie was on there. I mean, he just, that's how much he loved Willie. And it kind of ruined, you know, when your dad, I mean, I'm from the rock, I'm a rock, I'm from the generation gap generation. And when your dad's liking this stuff or your dad's friend, it's hard, it's, it's making it harder for me, but I, but I still adore him, you know, and he's unimpeachable, which I think Dolly is too. I think that's really a good comparison. Why didn't they do a duet or maybe they did? I'm sure they did some duets, but I can't, nothing's jumping out at me. Maybe Steph can Google, uh, but, um, but yeah, that does seem like an, an unusual missed opportunity there. But I think that, yeah, you'd think you'd think that they, they would have crossed. I do I do have to catch uh, uh, Matos though. He has a very rare mistake that I caught, um, and and you know a book of a general interest music book like this, you're in. It's inevitable that the writer is going to make a mistake because you're covering so many topics. Nobody is an expert on every topic, and people can make mistakes on the topic they are expert on, you know, and just not catch it in the editing or whatever. But this is pretty minor. But he mentions that he kind of gives a summary of Willie's career and says he was a songwriter turned performer in the '60s. But that's not actually correct. He was always a performer. It's just that he had massive commercial success as a songwriter while he was still pretty much struggling as a performer. He, he wrote hits for Ray Price and Patsy Cline and Farron Young and others that were massive, massive country hits in the late 50s and early 60s, Nightlife and uh, Crazy and, and others. Um, but he, he had been, you know, I've done many episodes on Willie with his biographer, Jernick Potofsky, and uh, Willie was performing from the get. Um, so it was... Uh, Anyway, I, I don't know. I'm just rubbing Matos's face in it because you know so much that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I know he's listening. Well, one thing I I didn't know about was this Kenny Rogers and Sheena Easton duet from 1983, "We've Got Tonight," which was number one country in '83, a Bob Seger song. And I I went and played that. I don't think I'd ever heard that song before. Were you familiar with this Kenny Rogers Sheena yeah, Easton duet? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, because I actually. I had that Bob Seger album that that was on, which was um, one of my less proud uh, album purchases looking back now um, from 1978. So I knew that song. And I, I mean, when that song, I remember when it came out and it was, it was on that same radio station in Columbus, Georgia, that, you know, the, the hit station. And so it was, and she was, you know, they, then she did the, the, the Prince thing right after that. Um, or pretty soon after that, um, 85, I think it was early 85 when the, that Prince produced thing came on. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Nate, you're muted. You? Nate. Oops. My bad. My bad. Um, that was 87. That was 87. Oh, it was? Sugar Walls might Sugar have been Walls? 86, but... But you've got the look was eighty seven for sure because it was all right, the time. Right. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Um, I'm thinking of Sugar so, But yeah. But when, Sheena did. I would call that Sheena Easton's heel turn because she came out with um, "My Baby Catch Takes the Morning Train." Remember that? That was morning, her first song. Yeah. 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 And I remember Casey Kasem giving that endless attention, and then this duet with Kenny Rogers that I have no memory of. Um, which is really odd, but, and it's weird because I was being 
forced to hear a lot of country music in this period. And somehow I missed that song. I, when I heard it, I, I was like, I didn't, you know, I don't have any memory of hearing it before. But anyway, I, I, it was interesting. I mean, Sheena Easton was like the ultimate kind of pop chameleon in this period. And then yeah. does her heel turn in the in the late 80s when she starts working with Prince and doing more kind of sexually explicit stuff. And, and obviously, you know, uh, a very erotic duet with, with yeah. Prince, who's, you know, um, inherently scandalous, plus the whole interracial aspect. So... I don't know. I've got some admiration for Sheena Easton. I'm kind of curious what became of her and the rest of her career. But I guess after you've worked with Kenny Rogers, you're ready for anything. It's kind of. Okay. Well, I mean, again, he was at the he was he was at that point that no matter what he did, he he actually got into photography. And again, this was something that people my parents age bought was his book of photographs of famous people. And it wasn't Danny Leibovitz. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and he also had the Kenny Rogers chicken, which is immortalized on Seinfeld. And yes, Dolly and, <laughs> and Willie actually did a duet on Willie's song Pretty Paper, which was a hit for Roy Orbison in 1963, written by Willie. And But that's pretty recent that Dolly and Willie did that. So they didn't do a duet in their high okay. water mark in the 80s. Okay. But um, so then, then he, he gives some background on uh, the fanfare. And and um, and also its role in the tourism industry in Nashville. So you know you had uh, Opryland, which was built by the Grand Ole Opry, a complete music uh, amusement park. You also had uh, Conway Twitty's Twitty City and Music Village. Dolly Parton had her own um, retreat and amusement park. You, that talk, talks about the Bill Monroe Bluegrass Museum, which opened that year, and and so that. Uh, Tourism in Nashville, um, country music tourism drew 7.4 million tourists in 1984, and I don't think it's slowed down since. And it's so funny, and I had no idea about this until I started doing Let It Roll, but in the 30s, 40s, 50s, the town elders of Nashville were really pretty embarrassed by the whole country music thing. And it, and it really took the tourism of people coming down to see the Grand Ole Opry on Saturday night, be, becoming an undeniable piece of, you know, the, the city budget. And uh, and it's it's just funny to me that the, the, the town fathers of Nashville, the Athens of the South, as they say, fancy it, uh, you know, were so down on, on country music. But by this point, they've given up and country music was one of the dominant industries of Nashville and people like... Um, Roy Acuff were, uh, you know, city fathers by that point. But the the fanfare specifically was formed by three sisters from Colorado, Ludilla, Loretta, and Kay Johnson. So uh, Kay kind of got r ripped there. I mean, Ludilla and Loretta, those are pretty awesome names, especially for people who are going to found not just one country music fan club, but the IFCO, the International Fan Club Organization. Like they, they started out, I guess, as Loretta, uh, was it Dolly Parton or Loretta Lynn fan, fans, started one fan club. And then by the 80s, they had this IFCO, which had umbrellaed 250 different country music fan clubs. So these ladies were like the queens, the empresses, of country music fan clubs and they started the fanfare and i thought this was pretty hilarious they started the fanfare basically to get fans to come to it instead of the dj convention in nashville 
because yeah. <laughs> it was too crowded and the DJs, you know, had payola to collect, I presume. There you but, go. Yeah. I mean, you know, business is business and you got to keep the business and the fans, uh, you know, a little bit separate. But I don't know. I think this was a pretty good way to cover country music. You, you, you know, you're going to have to. I mean, it was a big chunk of the music biz. Uh, in, in 1984, and let's go ahead and, and and hear our next act. This is one of the new traditionalists that, that are going to start revolutionizing country music through this period, all the way through uh, the early 90s. And this is Reba McIntyre, "Before I Met You," from her "My Kind of Country" album. And that was Reba McIntyre's Before I Met You, the first song on her My Kind of Country album. And they talk, um, Matos talks about that in, in this chapter, and he, he brings up J- Jimmy Bowen, who, like I said, is, is uh, you know, kind of the, the capo de tutti capo of Nashville record executives, which is funny because in the 60s, he was originally the Youngblood producer at Frank Sinatra's Reprise Records, and he's the guy who kept Frank Sinatra on the pop charts in the 60s with things uh, like Something Stupid, his duet with his daughter Nancy, um, Strangers in the Night, which Frank hated. Um, you know, that whole, that whole, he got Dean Martin to the top of the charts. He, um, he's the guy who hooked up um, Lee Hazelwood with, with Nancy Sinatra. And um, and then had the second career in Nashville, where he, I think Matos must have talked about him in an earlier chapter, because I can't think of what book I would know this from. I've got a Jimmy Bowen autobiography that I haven't read yet, but I've got it on my shelf. But, you know, at this point, he's sort of serial taking over different record labels and firing everybody and, and, and you know, cleaning the decks. He's kind of like the alpha A&R man in all of Nashville. He's the guy who gets rid of the other A&R men. But he um, has this reputation as this like completely commercially minded hack. And then, uh, and yet he's the guy who let Reba McIntyre switch producers and bring in Harold Shedd and and choose her own songs for My Kind of Country. And he just did it because he, he had, you know, had one plan for her and then she walked into his office and met with him and totally changed his mind. So I think I think it's a testament to Jimmy Bowen's A and R skills that he wasn't a one size fits all kind of producer um, or A and R guy. I think by this time he was way beyond being a producer. But they didn't. He didn't try to force her into being, uh, you know, doing Islands in the Stream type stuff. He let her do this 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 country stuff, and I think it's really. Uh, just the two songs that we've played, uh, the difference between Before I Met You, where you're actually hearing fiddles, and you know, there's other tracks where you hear dobros and 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 steel guitars, and and you know, it's actual country music, and and I remember 
when Reba and George Strait and others started, you know, um, Randy Travis was Ricky Skaggs actually was before before them, um, and Randy Travis comes along a little later. Uh, but it was just you know this new traditionalist movement that for me, sweeping the floor at the Oklahoma Tire and Supply where I had my first job, like it was such an improvement over the synthesizer heavy fake country that that dominated this this whole this whole era do you remember your first when you first noticed these new traditionalists you know i that's a boy that's a that's a loaded question for me i'll i'll put it this way if uh, if i had bought um if i brought ashley judd home uh to meet my mom my mom would have been over the moon if i'd brought home winona my mom would have been over me. So um, <laughs> I am a I am a city boy. But but you know, but what you're saying, I mean, she's authentic. I think I mean is isn't Reba who she really is, and then that's what really what Dolly is, and that's what Willie is. You know, these authentic people, um, which I mean I think Willie is a traditionalist. Um and maybe he isn't, but I mean he does he doesn't sound like um, a fake country. He doesn't sound like um, Keith Urban. <laughs> no, no. Although you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't knock Urban too much. I mean, um, but that, that's that's a whole separate topic. But the thing about Willie, well, yes, is that the outlaw movement simultaneously was sort of a neo-traditionalist movement in the '70s, and it was a big crossover movement because it was this generation of country guys coming to terms with rock and roll and Waylon Jennings in particular was, I mean, he, he played bass with Buddy Holly and literally on a, on Bill, right. Buddy Holly's last tour. So he was always a rocker. And when he, when he made his big break in, in Tucson, um, it, it was, you know, more rock and roll than what Buck Owens and Merle Hager were doing in Bakersfield and Nashville tried to force him into this country folk bag that was an awkward fit for Waylon, and they didn't have any idea what to do with Willie through that whole period. And so, in the '70s, when they got their freedom, uh, their stuff was, you know, closer to rock and roll than traditional country, and yet it was truer to the spirit of traditional country than than the country politics stuff that they were competing with. So, Willie's kind of an odd case as as a crossover artist. But then you hear stuff like, I mean, I love their version of Poncho and Lefty. But it's very synthesizer heavy and very 80s production style. And, and of course, what he's doing with Julio Iglesias is 100% 80s production style. And so when Reba and George Strait come along and they're doing fiddles and doing these pretty dry production styles, not a lot of reverb, just, you know, Beatles style dry instruments really cut through. And like, um, you know, you mentioned the judge and he, and he talks about the judge quite a bit, Naomi and Winona, the mother and daughter duet. And one thing I learned here I didn't know was that their given names were Diana and Christina, respectively. And they, and they rebranded themselves Naomi and Winona Judd pretty cleverly, I think. I mean, it, it definitely. I agree. Yeah. It know. makes them seem more country, like the women who started the, the um, fan club organization. Yeah, you know, they've got more country names then. How much? How much do you think um, Outlaw set up uh, the new traditionalists, or did it have anything to do with it at all? I well, it it did and it didn't. I mean, 
I think that the outlaw country guys were self-conscious posers in a way. Like, like you know, Waylon would yeah, have yeah. his his yeah. his Telecaster with that leather. Like he had a Telecaster that somehow had yeah. been covered in leather, the hand embossed, you know, leather and <laughs> always wears black and the big hat. And Willie, you know, always had the bandana and, and the ponytails. And, you know, you, then you get characters like David Allen Coe that are just completely over the top with that kind of image stuff. Yeah. And yeah, the, you know, Hank Williams Jr. kind of rode that outlaw wave too when he rebranded himself as his own person rather than being a revival act for his dad. You know, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Let's take the sponsor break and let me mold that, and I'll come back with some brilliant insights. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Actually, I my impression is that the new traditionalists really came more out of the bluegrass scene, and also, like Ricky Skaggs was straight out of the bluegrass scene, and um, John Anderson was also n- not the bluegrass scene, but very much a traditional uh, country artist. And the way they positioned themselves, you know, George Strait dressed like a real cowboy, but the kind of real cowboy that you might see at Texas Tech or Texas State, you know, not um, not the kind of cowboy like Waylon Jennings that you might see hanging out with the Banditos or the Hells Angels, like a, a very different sort of yeah. preppier, mellower kind of, yeah. um, it was a very 80s sort of thing, like, like you know, button down shirts and, and and stuff even with the cowboy boots and the cowboy hat so it wasn't i didn't have that self-conscious i'm on the edge or i'm close to rock and roll vibe at all it was very moving away from rock and roll um so yeah i don't know i mean i I definitely think that the outlaw movement and then the swing back towards pop country you know you had the outlaw movement from like 
totally dominant from like 76 to 80. And then you kind of had the urban cowboy movement, which is this pop country thing. I mean, looking for love in all the wrong places and, and that, that whole ethos. And actually Austin and Houston had had kind of rival tree scenes and an urban cowboy was a pretty accurate reflection of what Mickey Gilly and others were doing in the Houston scene that was very different from the Austin scene, which had a lot of like folk singer type crossovers, like people like Jerry Jeff Walker that came from the folk, the pop folk, you know, uh, uh, the, the Kingston trio kind of tradition or whatever at the Greenwich village folk singing tradition. And then had gone to Austin and kind of turned country and then Willie and Waylon came along and kind of took over that scene and, and took it national in a big way. And then you had the urban cowboy movement, which synced up with Dolly going disco and Kenny Rogers going pop country and, and you know, becoming this dominant force and his, his alliance with Barry Gibb and Lionel Richie and these other pop figures. So that I would say that the new traditions were more a reaction against the Kenny Rogers era stuff than they had anything to do with the outlaw movement. The outlaw movement was, you know, by that time, Wayland and, and the gang are playing stadiums or not stadiums, but arenas, big, big theaters and sometimes stadiums. Um, so they, you know, it was a direct reaction to that. Um, I wouldn't say, but then let's see what's, what's next to cover. This is kind of a short chapter. And I think he could have, he could have covered, um, you know, there's a few more artists he could have covered. I think John Anderson and Ricky Skaggs, like I mentioned, are both pretty notable uh, in this period. But essentially, I think covering the Judge, Reba, and George Strait, you kind of get the new traditionalist thing. And then the Jimmy Bowen stuff gives you kind of the biz, the, the biz guy perspective on it. But then he raps with the dreaded, <laughs> the hated... <laughs> Lee Greenwood, God bless the USA. Now, Don, I don't even want to know the first time you heard it. I want to know what's the most recent time you've had this inflicted on you. Oh, God. Well, you know, it's really, I, I hate to pull this in, but I, I have, you know, I have a, a connection to Leonard Skinner, and I um, Nothing to wanted to of. see them. Yeah, I wanted to see them in their you know, the incarnation, I don't really think of them as Leonard Skinner, but I went and saw them in 2014. And, oh, um, wow. that, man. that has turned into it, into an, uh, something that Lee, that would fit right in with Lee Greenwood. And here's why they've turned Freebird into like a, an American anthem. Uh, and with, a, you know, they've started using the American, the, you know, the bald Eagle and that's been going on for a while. And, that's that's just deeply disturbing to me, and it's so post Gulf War, you know, it's kind of that um, that whole thing. And I mean, I've heard it at baseball games. That's that's my my country music loving wife, you know, loves it when it comes on because she can kind of give me a hard time because she sees me <laughs> turning green, you know, um, and not because I like Lee Greenwood, um, but <laughs> and. I mean, is that is that enough? Is that that's, tell you that, enough? That's, I think that's, that, it... <laughs> that sets up my latest trauma tale of it, which was taking my kid to a Cub Scout campout on the USS Livingston, and and you know we you spend the night in this giant aircraft carrier, and this thing is enormous, 
and it's haunted. It is absolutely haunted. It is creepy and it's huge. And you walk around in the bowels of this thing. And you know, there's lots of dark passageways. You do not go down, but there's lots of lit passageways that you go and take the tour. And they have like a, a screaming mannequin. Like they have this dentist office set up <laughs> where they show you the, the World War II dentist just horrifically yanking teeth out of some poor soldier's head, you know, sailor's head. And they've got a recorded of this guy screaming. And so my little kid was terrorized because we're walking through this ghostly haunted aircraft carrier. And then of course, at the big muster, everybody has to stand in line with their troop and their pack and all this stuff. And of course they play God bless the USA and turn it into a full on fascist rally. And it was just like, you know, yeah, it was it was brutal, you know, after like three hours of sleep on these hideously uncomfortable bunk beds and eating the worst food ever. And then they whip out the God bless the USA and just with no mercy, no mercy whatsoever. <laughs> and it's it's very much an 80s song. Like, I mean, I remember. Do you remember Dare? Yeah, Dare of to course. Keep- yeah. yeah, to keep kids yeah. off drugs, and and they would. Now you were in high school in the seventies. Were they doing that kind of crap in the seventies? No, no, they didn't do. Dare didn't start until till the eighties, um, for sure. Yeah, and there was some. The they were they were still using scare tactics, and then some of the then campus crusades started kind of getting in, kind of worm their way in, um, in a real weird kind of almost obtuse way. They played us this video with um the eagles desperado on it and it i could never figure out what were they trying to do were they trying to get us to be christians or trying to get us off drugs or <laughs> both? well so. even alcoholics anonymous you know res, you know resorts to the to the to the higher power card but my first exposure to that particular brand of brainwashing was um the guy who claimed at least that he was the real life inspiration for Beretta and his gig had devolved into traveling around elementary schools and middle schools and giving these sort of scared straight speeches. And of course he's a Brooklyn guy. Like he wasn't a country person, but the next year we had the full on dare rally, which was an absolute fascist no holds barred, using drugs to terrorize people. And the hypocrisy of it, like, I was totally falling for this. Like, I was the kind of kid who was like, oh, yeah, that Mike Tyson, he's a total clean liver, you know? Like, oh, Ozzy's quit drugs, <laughs> you know? I mean, I, like, any, I believed it all. Like, oh, Run DMC would never touch this stuff, you know? And, and uh, I just thought everybody had renounced drugs, and I had no idea that the 80s were, like, the cocaine and LSD era until I got get to college and see this stuff firsthand. But and it seemed like every drug dealer I knew in the late '80s or early '90s had a Dare T-shirt that they would bust out. Yes, yes. Um, Chris Robinson from the Black Crows wore one when when he was in Vanity Fair with um, Goldie Hawn's daughter, who's now in can't remember, Kate Hudson. When they yeah, when Kate. those two lovebirds when those two lovebirds got together, their their photo in Vanity Fair was he's wearing that Dare. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it was it became this classic irony thing. But God bless the U.S. They never got that full ironic treatment because the people who take it seriously have never let it go. I mean, it is still this anthem. 
I mean, 1984 was, I guess, a year or two before Oliver North uh, became a celebrity, testifying about how he had bought missiles from the Iranians and then used them to fund the Contras in South America. And he didn't mention the whole part about the, you know, shipping cocaine to Los Angeles to, to fund all this. But it, it had that same feeling where I watched this thing on TV and I came away like, wow, this guy's this total evil criminal. I bet people are going to be really mad. And then they come to school the next day and everybody loves Oliver North. You know, like they're waving yeah. flags and, and saying, if, if you don't love Oliver North, I'm going to punch you. And, and that was exactly the ethos that God bless the USA just absolutely captured. And I don't know if you've looked at Lee Greenwood, like gone back and, and looked at some of his videos and stuff from the 80s. And he dresses like he's in a Huey Lewis cover band. You know, he does not, there's no yeah. country aspect to this at all. And yet he's more true to the country ethos in some ways than anybody else. I mean, it's, it's, it's really fascinating stuff. Uh, it's, you know, I think this is going to end up being a shorter episode because it's a shorter chapter, but this, this Lee Greenwood phenomenon, and I, I'm not going to play God bless the USA. You can go hear that on your own dime, but, but uh, let's go ahead and hear, um, Lee Greenwood's Going, Going, Gone, which went number one country. And this is as pop country as it gets. It's over. I left the door unlocked again. But this time someone new walked in While she was all alone And that was Lee Greenwood doing Going, Going, Gone, which was number one country for him off the Somebody's Gonna Love You album, his first album, which... Uh, um, uh, Matos quotes somebody saying, we should have called it Lee Greenwood's greatest hits. And and if only he'd stopped there because, you know, <laughs> he goes on to produce God Bless the USA. I also thought it was classic that he literally came out of Las Vegas. Like this guy was a Las Vegas uh, lounge entertainer who, as Matos says, his range extended from soft rock to soft country. And I mean... Yeah, that just sums up everything. I don't know. Any more trauma tales about Lee Greenwood? Or? Well, do you, do you think that it was was there always, and this, this, my wife says nowadays, and she is a country music fan, and she grew up in the country. Um, and her her mom, who, um, I mean, she grew up, my wife grew up in a, in a rural farm area in Wisconsin. And um, she says that every country star nowadays has a song about veterans or a song about a patriotic song, but, but it's more connected to soul, the soldier experience. I mean, is this, this, how this did, was he planting that seed? Was that, does it fit right into the, to the whole, um, well that, that, you know, that, that yeah, go ahead. that, well, the, the, um, Travis Tritt sort of, uh, you know, um, yeah, here's a quarter I was call thinking that. It cares and, and the attacks on the on the the formerly Dixie Chicks now the Chicks around two thousand three, yeah. and and yeah. you know but that that reactionary strain has two source rivers, vis-a-vis country music. There's there's the whole 
Sergeant Barry what's his face in the Ballad of the Green Berets in sixty six. Okay. Or sixty five, yeah. sixty six, which wasn't country music at all. It was straight up jingoism on the pop charts, but it was usually popular with country fans. And then Merle Haggard does Okie from Muskogee as a joke. Uh, tongue completely in cheek like they were smoking pot on the bus when they drove through muskogee and that's where the whole they don't we don't smoke marijuana in muskogee thing came from and and as as in my episode with dave cantwell i learned that merle was gonna follow that up with a song uh irma jackson about interracial love which would have been the the smart play but his record label capital didn't want to let him do that and and push back and Merle kind of folded and comes back with fight inside of me, which is completely reactionary. Love it or leave it kind of, you know, I'm going to punch you hippie, which I can certainly see the appeal of, you know, I'm a punk rocker. So I, I viscerally feel the whole I'm going to punch you hippie in a real way. But then Merle, of course, you know, by 2003 is sort of on the left wing of all this. And, you know, it's one of the people trying to push back against Travis Tritt and those guys. But you know, then the whole bro country movement has been essentially sort of repackaging 70s Southern rock or, or just any kind of rock, really more like 80s hair yes. in a way. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, uh, and that's a totally normal thing for country music to do. Country has always been kind of like the place where um, uh, Americans – look back at the past one last time like you know whether it's uncle dave macon doing you know song minstrel songs from the 1890s as country songs in the 1920s um all the way to basically rewriting sweet home alabama as a big country hit just two or three years ago and i can't remember the name of the song that's like a complete rip of sweet home alabama um, that was on the country charts. But what I wanted to do, since this chapter was kind of short, was run through uh, the number one country hits that year and see what what else was going on that Matos doesn't get into. And, and like George Strait is uh, You Look So Good in Love, so, you know, covered that. Um, then T.G. Shepard, Slow Burn, and T.G. Shepard's definitely, and, and John Conley, in my eyes, they were definitely part of that early 80s, era and then crystal gale and ronnie Millsap, they were right there with kenny rogers in that whole period then you've got merle haggard doing lefty for sales that's the way love goes which was originally hit for johnny rodriguez in the 70s and so merle was a perennial by this point and but was still had a strong run in the 80s and then um ricky skaggs with don't cheat in our hometown so one of the preeminent new traditionalist right there with a massive hit. And then Don Williams, who was one of these, he was kind of like the country version of James Taylor or that kind of soft rock. I, I love Don Williams, but yeah, it, you know, he's coming out of that early seventies kind of James Taylor, Cat Stevens kind of vibe just has a cowboy hat on. Yeah. Um, and here's going, going, gone from Lee Greenwood. But one, th- yeah. And he doesn't talk about the Statler brothers who had a hit with Elizabeth. So, I don't know that they needed to be talked about, but I'm seeing Alabama and Oak Ridge Boys, which he's not covered either. And that was definitely a major factor. And Alabama in particular was epitomizing that sort of reactionary trend that um, that we're talking about here. I think I think 
for that time. I don't know. I don't know. Did you ever like? I never gave the Oak Ridge Boys in Alabama a chance. I'm probably wrong about that, but I found Elvira just um, Steph's loving Elvira, but I, I found it just immensely painful <laughs> to take. <laughs> no, you know what's weird? Did you do you remember um, Alabama's? Um, the closer you get was on Friday night videos. Um, yeah, they had they had a video. On, I mean, that was my exposure to them, and it was intriguing. They were from, I, I want to say they were from Fort Payne, Alabama. They were from near where my first job was. So I mean, they were kind of around. Although they're kind of like Hootie and the Blowfish. I think they got huge in Myrtle Beach. Um, and I'm really talking kind of way. Um, out of my league, but but they did come to my attention. I had friends in college who liked Alabama, and they they definitely had a brand that yeah. that um kind of a bro brand. Like one of them was in uh, the same fraternity as my next door neighbor, and they you know one of their albums they, they were all pursuing their hobbies and everything. And then that seems like another band that just was printing money by yes. that time. Yes, they absolutely were. They absolutely were. And 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 also um just to you know, I just using Confederate iconography straight up, uh, unapologetically. There you go. Unironically. Yeah. But without seeming racist. Um that yeah, yeah. it was just the kind of thing you could get away with. I mean Hank Williams Jr. has a song called If the South Would Have Won, We'd Have Had It Made. And my boss at the <laughs> Oklahoma Tire and Supply Company would finish that verse with a, a line including the N-word, and we'd all have um, a blank slave. And I was I remember just nice. thinking, this is fucking evil, you know? <laughs> this is yeah. wrong. And uh and you know, but at, in the eighties you could just get away with that shit. It was it, it was amazing. But let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is George Strait's Amarello by Morning. George Strait's Amarillo by Morning, which I picked because I'm from the Texas Panhandle and there aren't many songs about Amarillo. So, um, and it, I don't know. I don't know if they played that as much not in the Texas Panhandle, but you could not get away from that song in the Texas Panhandle. I have to tell you, like they they played that <laughs> shit all the time, and I liked it. I liked George Strait all the way through. But you know, go back to looking at the charts, like uh, you see Julio and Willie in their duet. And then also Eddie Raven, who was a big pop rocker around that time. And and one song that wasn't a hit this year, but was on the radio constantly, Juice Newton. Oh, Juice Newton? I was going to yeah. ask you what, what where you think Juice Newton felt uh, fit in, because she started Queen of Hearts. doing more That's pop after that. Yeah, Queen of she Hearts did, and then she, Angel, Angel of the Morning. She's the definitive, one of the definitive urban cowboy era pop country people okay. along with Eddie Raven yeah. that were truly rockers. I mean, 
you know, but yeah. I loved Angel of the Morning and Queen of Hearts. They were just badass. Um, but and you were still hearing that stuff on the radio constantly to this, yep. this whole period. Yes, you were. And, Very and true. you know, so it wasn't like it had gone away. And so this stuff like, you know, the, the George Strait or the Reba or the Ricky Skaggs or John Anderson that might be breaking through, it would be coming through a thick veil of Kenny Rogers and Crystal Gale and Alabama and Oak Ridge Boys and Lee Greenwood. And it was um, it was a treat, you know, the, 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 the real hardcore country stuff you know, sounded a treat. And it's funny, the more I learn about this stuff, I I just thought the Oak Ridge boys were some hideous pop country confection. And yet it turns out they, they were legit gospel artists on the white gospel yeah. side of the line and had, had put in like well over a decade uh, of, of work in that circuit before they, they went into country. Um, and, you know, and like somebody like Ronnie Millsap that I just thought was just, I had everything I'd heard on, on the radio, and I heard a lot of Ronnie Millsap on the radio. I did not like, and I just thought it was pop country, and insufferable. And then I find out he's like really a Memphis blue-eyed soul singer, blind. So blue-eyed might be an unfortunate sort uh, <laughs> of phrase to refer to Ronnie right. Millsap. But apologies there. But that's what he was. He was a white guy who sang blues and R and B, and went country just because that was kind of the market he could get into. He he never had any luck um, trying to go the R&B rocker route. I think he was just too late to the party for that. But he, he had a you know very successful country career, and it turns out he's a pretty respected musician. So, you know, it's 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 amazing what what kind of ignorance you can wallow in for years. That's like Glenn Campbell, who's a great guitar player, and I think one of the brilliant stylists of all time. And I yeah. would never have thought that. I mean, and, and actually I really enjoy, um, Hank Jr. I mean, I, I really yeah. enjoy his style when I'm not getting fed his bullshit. Exactly. And that's the same thing with David Allen Coe. Like long haired redneck is one of my favorite songs. And the only time I've ever had a chance to see David Allen Coe, it was in Austin in the nineties at a club that was, I knew as soon as I went in there, and it was full of Pikes, which is a fraternity. That yeah, yeah, yep. I, these guys would all wear ropers, and that's a kind of boot, and they all had money, and it was like every one of them's dad was like the county attorney of somewhere, and they travel in these giant packs, and they would wreck your shit if you got crosswise with them, or even just came to their attention. And, and as soon as I go into the Black Cat and it's full of pikes, I'm like, oh, this is not what I was expecting. And 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 Co has a whole album of like racist, sexist obscenities that he would sell out of the trunk of his car. And that was what he was playing was these songs off that. And, you know, I had to leave before I was killed by pikes um, and and. and you know, it's it's very painful and embarrassing as a Southerner and somebody of Scots-Irish descent, which is more commonly known as rednecks, to be associated with these people who cannot give it up. And, you know, the Williams family were not slavers. They were not wealthy Southern aristocrats. They were they were trash just like my family were, picking cotton and, and you know, falling for the old scam of you're better than the black people 
like that's all you have to give yeah. us is just that one thing yeah. and and then we'll run we'll run with it and it's just so embarrassing and mm-hmm. you know that's one thing that was important about people like Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings and Merle Haggard too was that they were explicitly anti-racist and yes. you know Willie in particular was a big advocate for Charlie uh, Pride and and you know other black performers in country music and it was a big part of the whole 70s feeling of kind of we're healing um you know, after all the unrest of, of the 60s, but it was also, sadly, I think, kind of functioned to make everybody think, well, we solved that problem. Now we can go back to being our stupid yeah. asshole selves. Yeah. And and that's where you get Leonard Skinner, who, you know, Ronnie Van Zant in the 70s was clever enough to have somebody like Robert Christgau mulling his lyrics and wondering and giving him the benefit of the doubt over and over again. And, you know, Ronnie Van Zandt, of course, died in 1977 in a plane crash so that when Rossington and Collins or Collins in particular, who just passed away, was running the band in the 90s and 2000s, they just took that stuff in the most jingoistic direction like you were talking about and went so far with it that that documentary they made, they worked really hard to try to deny that. Like they realized that that's true. They had it's almost like they, yeah. That was the the theme was like, well, you don't really know Leonard Skinner, and you know, at the beginning they're showing people on the front row, and then they're showing that eagle, you know, the golden eagle on the piano and all that, and they're saying there's this Leonard Skinner you don't know. That's the only Leonard Skinner that matters, and that's why they're still playing all but two of their songs are those Leonard Skinner songs from. They're Ronnie Van Zant songs. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, so we've we've kind of gone far afield from from country of 1984, but this is just the kind of stuff for crackers like ourselves, <laughs> if I can include there you go. In that category that we yeah. have to deal with when these topics come up. You know, we're here to talk about Prince and Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen and Madonna and everything. And 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 Matos brings up the the country ghost out of our closet or the skeleton out of our closet, and, and we have to confront this stuff. And so, you know, the takeaways are everybody loves Willie. We still love Dolly Parton, even though she totally went pop country in this period. And honestly, like I said, I like plenty of the pop country. Eddie Rabbit had a plenty of fun songs, and yeah. Crystal Gale had yeah. some good songs, and and Juice Newton definitely had some good songs. But nonetheless. That stuff was played out by 1984, and Lee Greenwood is like the rotten, you know, broccoli fart left over after that party, and and people like it's not a good, it's not a good turn. (laughs) No, no, it's not, and 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 yet the next generation is apparent and is here. The Judds, Reba McIntyre, Ricky Skaggs, George Strait. Those folks are having hits with this new traditionalist sound that's going to carry country all the way until the. It's going to carry country into the Garth Brooks era. It's actually what's going to spawn Garth Brooks, who's going to then, and not that I think it's anything he did, but just his commercial success destroyed that era, and and so country is about to go on on, on a pretty exciting run. And it's interesting, like pop is having a great year in 1984, and I would say country is having a transitional year. So, any final thoughts yeah. on the country of 84? No. 
you know, I'm I'm glad you brought, I was thinking about Juice Newton. I'm glad you brought her up. And then she did tell her no. That was yep. that was her follow up to um and I don't know if it was a follow up to Queen of Hearts or the other one. Um Angel, Angel of the Morning. Morning. And the crazy thing is that Juice Newton's um either Queen of Hearts or Angel of the Morning was actually put out as a double A side by Capitol Records with Sheena Easton's Bond theme for Your Eyes Only, which is the weirdest pairing, but makes perfect sense. And then, you know, you find out that Sheena Easton and Kenny Rogers are having this huge duet, which I still cannot believe I missed. And I know, I mean, I knew the Bob Seger version. As soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, that's a Bob Seger song. But somehow, I swear, I've never heard this Kenny Rogers, Sheena Easton song, which seems impossible because I've listened, I spent the 80s, 70s and 80s listening to country radio non-consensually like i did not have any choice i had to hear country radio because it was the only thing you could pick up in the car it was the only thing they played at the garage where i worked it was just there and yet i somehow missed kenny rogers and sheena easton's version we've got tonight so there's always new things to learn folks that's the moral of the story there's always more to learn and next week we'll be uh talking about hip-hop in 1984 so a very interesting year with run dmc coming over taking over but you still have all the, you know, um, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. I think they'd broken up, but Melly Mel and the Furious Five was was still going pretty strong. And you had Houdini going out there. So Curtis Blow is still a factor. So, you know, uh, hip hop is going to is, is going to go through a switch. And we'll talk about that next week. So, Ed Leck, thanks again. And we've been discussing Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Letter Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate and Garrett Cash return with more of the Holy Roll series, this time discussing the Queen of Gospel, Mahalia Jackson. Letter Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.